Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joe Bayer here with my co-host Clint Flowers. And Clint, what's been going on with you this week, man? Not much. Just uh, running the roads as always. We've got a lot of demand going on right now for land and still trying to squeeze in a little hunting. Yeah, we got, well, today's the last day in Alabama. You guys, uh, you got one tied up for Mason or are you, you going for yourself? Well, he's definitely going with me and I imagine that argument will be had in the field. <laughs> I hear you, man. Well, get out there and enjoy it while you can. And then, uh, then we're talking turkeys after that, which is that's where it's really at. Quit messing with these pine goats and go after the turkeys. That's my favorite time of year coming up. Well, we got a really awesome show today. A little later in the show, we're going to be talking about quail habitat, how to build wild quail habitat, uh, what's being done publicly and privately and what you can do. But before we do that, let's check in with this week's show sponsor. And this week is brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. Bucks Island is a family-owned and operated business since 1948. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They love trade-ins for boats and motors, and they can rig your boat or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory-trained and certified technicians, and you can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. All right, well, let's go check in with First South Farm Credit for this week's land loan interest rates update. Joining us again is Brandon Simpson. Brandon, tell everybody which office you're out of and where you cover, and then let's get into the interest rates, man. How you been? I've been doing well, Joe. Thank you for having me. I actually work out of our office in Baymanette in Baldwin County, and I've spent most of my time in six counties in southwest Alabama. But of course, uh, first south, we cover Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Well, Brandon, interest rates have been low. They, they seem to be staying low. A lot of people are wondering if that's going to continue to be the trend. Tell me what's going on. Are you guys seeing a slight tick upwards, downwards, uh, things kind of staying flat? What What's going on with land loan interest rates right now? I look back over the past six months and rates for the most part have remained stable. Now, looking back into December to what they are now in February, they, they've been pretty stable. However, they did go down a little bit at the end of December and into January and they have climbed back up. But we might see maybe a tenth of a percent plus or minus week to week with rates. But when you kind of get out of the week to week look at rates and I kind of look back over the past six months, uh, rates for the most part have remained stable with the exception of long term money. A lot of your long term money has increased some to where like your 20 year money is about up by two-tenths of a percent. So the only thing I am seeing is maybe a little bit of an increase in long-term fixed-rate money versus intermediate and short-term that's remained pretty stable. So many of the buyers we work with, I find a lot of the times when they finally do get into the market, they're telling me, well, you know, I just, I wasn't really sure how I was going to be able to pay for this. And I wasn't sure what kind of options were out there. And they don't even know about the farm credit system. So tell us a little bit about for those people maybe listening to the show, why, why does the farm credit system exist? How do y'all differ? Well, the farm credit system was established in the early 1900s by Congress. 
And of course, it's evolved over time, but we are a member-owned cooperative. So the people who borrow money from us is who owns us. And last year, First South had record earnings. Uh, 2020 was an exceptional year. And we paid back, going to be paying back around $21 million of our income back to our borrowers, which when you look at what that means to, to our borrowers and the income, it's about 18.7% of the interest that was paid by our members is getting returned back to them. When you think about that, a lot of people, you know, when they're in the loan phase, uh, whether that's pre-approval or they're actually got a property under contract and they're going out searching for how they're going to finance it, they're calling three, four, five banks or maybe using one of these online lead generators and they're getting calls from four or five banks. And, and most people are really just shopping the rate. You guys do things quite a bit differently in the form of that patronage that you're talking about. That really lowers the cost of borrowing. So it's kind of unfair to look at rates if you're comparing, say, a farm credit bank versus a, a non-farm credit system bank. Those rates aren't going to make exact sense. And talking about that initial phase when people are in the market for a loan, what kind of things do you want them to be prepared with when they reach out to you? If they're going to get that loan, we're trying to do this quickly. This year, it's been tough. You know, I mean, y'all been doing a great job getting loans closed as quickly as possible, getting properties closed as quickly as possible, but it's been tough with as much demand as out there. What are the types of questions? What kind of requirements do they need to be ready for when they come to get a loan? You know, typically by calling and speaking with one of our lenders, and kind of sharing with the lender, you know, how many acres you're looking at, what's roughly the dollar amount that you're looking to spend, you can kind of walk through the process of, okay, what are the down payments? What's going to be required of you financially in regards to getting a loan? Now, in the land business, typically the absolute minimum down payment as a general rule of thumb is about 15%. In some cases, it may go up to 20% or more depending on the loan amount and the situation, but the minimum down payment's 15%. One thing that you know you mentioned that's different about the farm credit system in First South is there's tons of options that are available and different loan terms that are available. It's not like a lot of your traditional financial banking sources who may offer one or two ways to be able to finance a piece of tr land. With us, you know, it's more about us asking the, the potential borrower questions. You know, what are their goals for this property? What do they intend to do to this property? What do they have in mind for a monthly payment? And those answers to those questions really help us be able to give accurate advice on, okay, how long do we lock in rates? How long do we fix rates? How long do we amortize payments? What's the best option and what's the best way for us to be able to structure and set up a loan that helps the borrower meet their financial goals? And be able to also do the things they want to do with the property, whether that's harvest timber, build a pond, build a, a cabin, whatever they may be wanting to do. I know y'all work a lot and maybe buy some equipment and can do some things along the equipment side of things. It, I just love that when, when we send somebody y'all's way on the buyer side, we know that w they're going to be talking to somebody that understands land the way that we do. And it is going to be able to answer all those types of questions. Whereas a lot of the typical banks out there really kind of shy away from that because they never dealt with it before. Y'all dealt with everything at this point. That, that's the big key difference I see. Well, talking about those rates, all right, let's go 15, 20, and 30. I know it's a range and it's, of course, depending on credit worthiness, but where are we sitting right now? 
Yeah, in regards to land rates, land rates are anywhere from around three and a half to four and a half percent. Of course, shorter the terms, uh, the lower the rates, and longer the terms, the higher the rates. Of course, you know, not only do terms play a factor in in rates, but credit quality of the borrower also plays a role in that. But yeah, as a general rule of thumb, rates have remained pretty stable uh, over the past year or so, kind of stayed in that three and a half to four and a half percent range. Brandon, you know, one of the biggest things when I'm working with buyers that I hear them talking about is they're really trying to figure out what they can afford. They, they, Of course, you can say, well, you can afford whatever you've got a 20% down payment for. If you're working with somebody and they're, they're trying to understand what they're going to be able to get qualified for, do you have a rule of thumb that you could give everybody to kind of help them figure out what, how much property that they're in the market for? Yeah, as far as a rule of thumb, you know, I typically do start off conversations when I get these phone calls of, okay, this is what I'm looking at. Can you help try to give me some advice on, on what I can and can't afford? The down payment issue typically is the first thing out the gate. Uh, as a general rule of thumb, you know, most people who have been able to save the down payment, come up with the down payment from a cash flow standpoint, typically don't have an issue servicing a 15, 20, or 30-year note. But for a borrower who wants us to actually sit down and analyze the income statements, they can always talk with us about going through the pre-approval process, and we'd be glad to do that. Uh, We'd be glad to talk with them and actually go through, okay, what is your income? What is your expenses? And go as far as, you know, doing a complete pre-approval to help them be able to go out and and find a piece of land and help y'all as agents be able to help the borrowers even better. Brandon, in today's interest environment with these recent bumps we've had moving up, I mean, from a landowner perspective, or if you're a prospective seller, I mean, have you seen the sense of urgency from these borrowers as buyers that we've seen in the market? You know, they're trying to get something locked in and closed quickly while these rates are are hanging around. Yes, Clint, I have uh, saw an increase in demand tremendously of trying to get transactions closed. I know for myself personally, I know I've closed already nine or so new deals just in the first, say, five weeks of 2021, and I've got another nine scheduled to close in the next 10 business days. So there's certainly a big sense of urgency amongst borrowers to try to go ahead and get these rates while they are low. One thing that I am just now starting to see, uh, as in the past month, is borrowers wanting to lock in rates for 30, 60 days because they're kind of unsure of what the future may hold in the short term. And that's something that typically I've not seen or not had borrowers really want to do or talk about really over the past few years. But we're doing more and more lock-ins on rates for 30 or 60 days to be able to guarantee these into closing. Brandon, take everybody through when you say folks are locking in, what that process means. If they want to call and go ahead and get locked in on a rate and they're planning on making a purchase, what's required of them to do that? Well, typically before we'll lock in a rate, we've certainly went through the pre-approval process and done the credit work. And then there's also a sales contract available on the property. Uh, So they've identified a property and have got a contract on the property. And that's typically at the point where we'll start locking in rates and getting serious about that. 
Gotcha. Well, Brandon, thanks again for joining us, man, and uh, updating us on the interest rates. I hope the next time we talk to you, they're even lower than they are now, but <laughs> I don't guess we know if that's going to happen. If folks want to uh, get up with you or, or anybody at First South, what's the best way to reach out to you? Well, they can always go online to www.firstsouthland.com. And of course, it's got all of our office locations on the website across all three states, including the information of my office here in Baymanette. The local Baymanet office number is 251-580-8678. All right, folks, this week's land loan interest rates update was brought to you by SunSouth. This is the season to get more done with quality John Deere equipment. And during the trade-in and trade-up sales event at SunSouth, you can own quality John Deere equipment for less with 0% financing on select new John Deere tractors and mowers, plus additional trade-in bonus cash for qualifying equipment. The trade-in and trade-up sales event at SunSouth. Visit SunSouth or shop sunsouth.com today. SunSouth, for those that do. Offers expire February 28th, 2021. Some restrictions apply See your dealer for details. Well, Clint, I was on a, about 100 and I guess it was about a 200 acre track last week and showing it to, uh, we eventually put it under contract. But, you know, one of the things that I was very pleased by was right as we stepped out of the truck, we jumped up a real nice covey of quail, some wild birds, and it always scares the crap out of you when that happens. But it was good to see some wild birds around, man. You've been seeing any birds on your place? We've uh, seen three coveys this year it's been a big accomplishment for us yeah i mean it, we used to see them all the time i mean there's nothing like uh walking through the woods in the pre-dawn darkness and <laughs> jumping up a covey of quail when you're thinking about deer hunting but that used to be a regular sight for a lot of people and that's really going to be the topic of today's show is what's being done how can you build wild quail habitat what's being done on public land what you can do on private land how you can get involved why is it important we talk about real estate a lot on here and the land business. What do you see as far as land values, Clint? When a place has quail, is that a good thing? Yeah, and it's not always tied to the quail. It's tied to the aesthetics and the beauty of that that wild quail habitat look. And like we'll cover some today. You I mean that that habitat benefits all types of wildlife. And when you've got something that's been maintained for quail or or that's quail quality, as we call it. It's just got a very serene look, well-managed, manicured look, and people love it. So it really supports really strong land values. Well, to discuss how to build wild quail habitat today, we're talking with two experts on the subject. And they're not related, although they share the last name. And that is Stephen Mitchell and Jimmy Mitchell. Stephen is the Upland Game Bird Coordinator for the Alabama Division of Wildlife and Freshwater Fisheries. And Jimmy is the president of the Black Warrior chapter of Quail Forever. Welcome to Huntland, guys. Good to be here. Thanks, Joe, for having us. Yeah, man. To start things off, I really think what's important to understand, because we're actually getting to the point now where there's a generation, in some cases several generations, where who haven't been exposed to quail hunting. They haven't been exposed to what it used to be like. And Maybe they just don't care. I don't know. But why do you guys feel like quail is such an important game bird? Why should people care about quail? Traditionally, or historically, quail were the most hunted and popular game bird in Alabama. And they were important both economically and socially, especially in the quail belt areas like around Union Springs, Hertzboro, down that way. And you mostly through the state back in the 50s and 60s and before 
and they were, you know, one of the most widely hunted game birds in North America, and they have been one of the most studied. Uh, from a biological perspective, uh, they can be considered a keystone species. Uh, they're an indicator of ecosystem health. If habitat conditions are good for quail, they're usually good for lots of other species and a representation of a, a community of wildlife that requires what's called early successional habitat. That's a lot better description. That's a lot better description than mine, which is it looks pretty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've never been on a place that had wild quail that didn't have good good numbers of deer and good numbers of turkey. The, the inverse of that's not not necessarily true. You were talking about that decline, though. I mean, what are we talking about in terms of numbers? Maybe just like what about harvest? How can we quantify the decline? in wild quail uh, in Alabama? To, to give you an idea, quail harvest annually were as high as 2.8 million in the 1960s. And today that has declined to around 160,000. And only around 14% of those birds harvested are, are wild birds. Wow. Wow. That's a pretty staggering number. Uh, that's a deflating number, I would say. And I wonder, I mean, I don't know if there's any data behind this, but you hear guys talking all the time. You hear, you know, we hear this all the time as hunters that hunter numbers are declining. License sales are declining. And we've gone in at length into why that's a bad thing for every hunter that license sales are declining. But it doesn't feel that way as from a deer hunter's perspective and from a turkey hunter's perspective. It doesn't feel like we have less deer hunters. Do you think some of that is because there's, people that used to quail hunt are now now deer hunting and turkey hunting and but a lot of those people that used to quail hunt just don't hunt at all anymore yes i think it's been a precipitous decline something you don't notice until you look back over the years hunters have shifted to deer and turkey and other types of hunting because the quail just aren't there anymore there's no no need in feeding a bird dog and hunting all day when you don't find any quail the habitat has declined so much that I think that's the main thing. The quail just aren't there. So guys that do want to hunt, they're going to they're gonna go after something they can see and find. You mentioned that wild quail habitat being in decline. You hear a lot of things, you know, it's this, that, or the other as to why quail have declined. Is that really it, though? I mean, does it boil down to habitat? It does. Uh, in a nutshell, changes in land use at the landscape level, we're talking to the southeast and, and all over the country, really, but uh, we'll keep it to the southeast in Alabama. But over the last 60 years, you know, those land use changes have changed so much that it's caused a widespread loss of quality early successional habitat, and that's meaning native grasses and legumes and weeds and briars and bugs and shrubs that you can find in that open habitat. And it's a combination of, of the early land use practices and farming methods changing from sharecropping and tenant farming that created those large patchworks of small fields and weedy edges and brushy fence rows. The, all that provided ideal quail habitat, and, and it was mostly a byproduct of the old types of farming. And that's been replaced by cleaner, uh, more mechanized, large farming practices. And even the pasture lands have been developed into real working cattle or hay production planted in grasses like fescue that have no habitat quality for quail at all. 
So those intensified civil cultural practices also with the trees, you know, the, the civil cultural practices have changed to a lot of high production pine timber and you get those thick closed canopy forests that they're not letting sunlight to the ground. So all that early successional habitat is suppressed and, and there's not much in there for quail and you know, that has increased all over Alabama uh, over the years. So all that habitat's been taken away, and, and the quail is just not conducive to, to growing or keeping the quail population around. And one of the main factors probably been the lack of or, or highly restricted use of fire in pine forest across the landscape. And that's created conditions that are too dense to have enough quail to hunt. But I'm glad I remembered that point because I think the lack of fire is has been a very limiting factor to quail populations. Is there any end in sight to this? I mean, it looks like all arrows are pointing downward for quail. Where does this all end, do you think? I mean, is there going to be a collective uh, awakening and practices, or is it just going to be kind of, this is it for quail? Well, Joe, I will say that I still hear a decent amount of people who don't really get out say, you know, there's no quail. When I hear that, I take that personally, because when you say no quail, I feel like that's extinct. You know, there still are quail in the landscape and places on some properties that are really good. But, you know, I hear a lot of people mention that, you know, they're hunting on certain public land or they're hunting on a lease on, in a clear cut and they're jumping cubbies or they've seen more birds or they heard more birds this past spring than they've heard in a while. I don't, and Stephen can correct me, but I don't think that there's an overall state study to show any trends. I really doubt it's a, any kind of sharp increase, but, you know, I'm hearing anecdotal reports of, of more birds on the landscape. And, you know, I know there's even further urbanization, but the Natural Resource Conservation Service is subsidizing a lot of landowners for practices such as prescribed fire, long leaf regeneration, pre-commercial thinnings, things of that nature. So there are programs out there and there are people, one person probably a week asked me, you know, where can they get help talking to a biologist on their land? So they have, there's people who have interest. Uh, there's places I go that I, I hear more birds and I see more birds due to changes in practices like increased prescribed fire and things of that nature. That's my take on going forward. I don't want to be all gloom and doom, but uh, there's no doubt that quail habitat is still in decline, you know, on, on large scale. Those land use changes that I mentioned earlier, they're hard to reverse at a landscape level. And we all know that land development throughout Alabama is only going to continue to increase in the coming years. And, and that'll further contribute to habitat conditions getting worse and more limited for quail. But there are bright spots, Jimmy was saying, you know, I think in a lot of places in Alabama, quail are, they're still hanging on because we all know a new clear cut somewhere about that second year, you can start hearing a few quail. But then as those conditions change over time, and that pine plantation grows up and that canopy closes, they're going somewhere else. Uh, and, and they're hanging on around the state like that. And then, you know, there are some really good lands uh, with intensive management. They have good populations, good huntable populations. Some of our public lands, uh, we also see positive responses. Uh, anytime we do any habitat improvements from from thinning uh, to new, new longleaf plantings, fire on the ground, we see responses from that, and we have plans in place to continue that on more of our, our public areas. Yeah, I mean, there's bright spots, but I don't think it will ever quell 
numbers will ever will ever be back to the point they were in the 60s or 70s before widespread declines started being seen. You know, and what I've seen in our business is this more about the landowners that are intentional about their management. Like I've got a, a 1,300-acre farm in Escambia County that he's had as many as 32 cubbies on it. It's been specifically managed for quail for several decades. And they've got big deer, they've got tons of turkey, they've got ducks, but his focus first and foremost is quail. And they promote that. And you know, I was actually on the phone with NRCS yesterday talking about their CSP programs, their deadlines and equip and whip programs, those deadlines, what all's included and not included. And one of the primary focuses of it is bringing back fire as much as possible as a management tool for, for timber and wildlife. And so I think that's helping a lot. But when Stephen mentioned fire, I think you see a sharp decline in quail after the 60s. I think around that in the 60s right there, Smokey Bear came out and, you yep. know, he was you know, on a mission. And, you know, I think there's definitely something to that trend. You know, I think the there still is Smokey Bear saying help prevent forest fires. But I think there's a lot of attention, you know, through you know, Washington, D.C. on forest management now and fire. You know, the, the Forest Service uses a lot of fire still. And I think people are more receptive to it now, but you know, it still needs a lot of education on fire. But I think there's definitely a correlation between Smokey Bear and the quality decline. Fire was frowned upon for many years. Even, and Stephen can correct me on this, but I think Aldo Leopold, the father of conservation uh, in Wisconsin, was anti-fire. And Herbert Stoddard, who started the Tall Timbers down in uh, the Red Hills of Florida and Georgia, he wrote a book and Aldo Leopold was not for it, but he eventually converted and he eventually you know, died on a prescribed fire on his property in Wisconsin. But, you know, even the father of wildlife conservation was against it one time. But I think wild, most wildlife managers nowadays are definitely pro-fire, but, you know, it was frowned upon for many years. Prescribed fire is the cheapest and most effective wildlife management tool that there is, in my opinion. And a lot of people are scared of it, but uh, a point to make here is if anybody wants to learn more about prescribed fire and get some practice doing it, the Forestry Commission offers a certified burn manager course, and people can sign up for that and go through the course. I think it's a three or four day course and uh, become a certified prescribed fire manager and gain some confidence in burning their property. And also there's a lot of the forestry commissions, you know, they're probably got a decent backlog, but they do it. Uh, they will perform, you know, they will put in fire breaks, perform prescribed fire, but, you know, and it's, I think it's a lot cheaper than some of the private companies, but they are a lot of good private individuals. And I think if you go on the Alabama Prescribed Council uh, website, you can get a list of those vendors by county. Mm -hmm. So if anybody's interested in putting fire on the property that don't, you know, want to do it themselves. Well, I spoke with the Forestry Commission guys this week too, and they they stay booked out, I think, for one reason. They're a, a very recognizable source for people, but they also those reasonable rates you mentioned, they they get booked out ahead of time, but they referred me to the same website. And, you know, we've got some clients that are doing a combination of chemical understory releases in, in conjunction with fire. Do y'all see a lot of that from a quail perspective as well? Yes. Uh, using some chemicals is always uh, going to be needed at some point. Yes, we do see a lot of that. And uh, I just thought of some small acreages. To have a real huntable population of quail, you need a, 
you need a good amount of acreage, but I don't want to, I never turn away anybody that's got 40 acres and, and they call and want to know how to get more quail. You're just doing a, some patchwork farming on that property at a smaller scale and even the burning ideal size burn units for quails be about 40 acres total. And that'll be, it. You, you conduct that burning in a patchwork or a checkerboard pattern or a mosaic and you're only going to burn about 50% of the property. So somebody with 40 acres could, you know, they could break that land up in the smaller units and go through there year to year and do some patchwork burning. So I want to make that point that it doesn't have to be a thousand, 2000 acres to have some quail. So people on those small properties can still do a little bit and, and have a few birds. I've never liked the argument that I'm not going to do something because my neighbor's not doing it. I don't, just don't think that argument holds water. If you want your neighbor to do something, the best best way to get him to do it is show him how, you know, show him that you're doing it. And specifically with quail, we've, we've said it a couple of times already in the show, though, quail habitat is good deer habitat. It's good turkey habitat. So if quail aren't your focus and maybe you don't get any quail, you know, <laughs> out of these management practices, it's not going to hurt your deer population. It's not going to hurt your turkey population. So you, you really can only stand to benefit from this. And, you know, yeah, maybe you only got 40 acres, but if you're doing it and your 10 neighbors are doing it and you know, now maybe you got a thousand acres, that's being managed and you're going to have some birds. And I just, I, I say, I, I just think that that habitat is, is so important for other species. And we've talked about that a little bit, but share a little bit about why you mentioned it earlier, Stephen, that there can be considered a keystone species. Why, what is that? Explain that a little bit. Well, the habitats that Bob White's rely on, they have a structural and plant composition characteristics that are shared by a lot of other species. And some of those species have, unfortunately, seen some declines, or several have seen a lot of decline, and, and that's a commonality with quail. Uh, some of those species include uh, gopher tortoise, indigo snake, American chestrel, uh, red cockaded woodpeckers, indigo bunnings, let's see, Bachman sparrow and even diamondback rattlesnakes. But the Bob White, you know, of course, is that habitat's also beneficial to numerous other songbirds, rabbits, turkeys, and deer. And it also can help improve water quality, reduce soil erosion, and, and enhance uh, some of the local economies by stimulating those quail hunting opportunities and, and even wildlife viewing. It really sounds like if you're managing for quail, you're managing for everything. And it's just a ton of benefits to it. More landowners need to do it and it's really just only going to help their property and help their their property value but a lot of the folks that listen uh, don't own land so let's talk about what's being done on public land quail forever i know y'all are involved a lot in that and obviously Stephen, <laughs> the state is uh, very involved in that tell, tell us a little bit about the initiatives that are underway and, and what's being done on state lands before we move off of private land joe i was going to mention that quail forever uh, yesterday announced three jobs we do try to do work on public land but all over the country they have private land biologists that work through nrcs and yesterday uh, they announced three jobs for alabama so that'll be the first three first jobs for alabama that's ever been created so there'll be one station out of the nrcs office in coleman jackson and laverne so those will be people with a quail focus they'll be working with nrcs programs like equip and uh, all those programs but they will be wearing a qf badge in partnership with NRCS. I wanted to throw that in before we, you know, when we were still talking off 
private events. Jackson, Alabama? Yes. That's my hometown. It's good news. <laughs> what you're talking about there, Jimmy, is these are professionals that are going to be able to go out and, and help with the different types of things we're talking about, maybe setting up a habitat management plan. Is that how they are functioning? Exactly. In the That's exactly right. Uh, and the state right now has six technical lands biologists that are shared, you know, within RCS, but they are like Stephen, wildlife and freshwater fisheries. And they are similar roles, but this will be partnership with Quell Forever. So when somebody asks me, or maybe you, they ask you like, you know, I want to know what I can do with Quell on my land. And they're just going to be another person out there with a little bit more focus on Quell, but wildlife in general. I want to know more about Quell and what I can do on my land. I got 40 acres. They can come site visit, write you a management plan and get you signed up, see if you qualify for call share, any of the programs. And if not, you got a management plan to go off of. You have to come yep. out of pocket for it. Yeah, I mean, we've been providing that assistance for a while with uh, wildlife and fisheries. Uh, so if folks need any help getting started, whatever they're interested in, quail especially, they can contact uh, wildlife and fisheries. We've got, a, as he mentioned, a team of wildlife biologists that are dedicated to assisting private landowners develop management plans to improve habitat for quail and all the other species that benefit statewide populations. So they can contact a local district office, reach out to a wildlife biologist there for the technical assistance. And uh, we work with NRCS in evaluating properties and, you know, NRCS provides a lot of uh, cost share assistance. The Bob White is identified as a national target species of the Working Lands for Wildlife program. And so the technical assistance is provided, financial assistance, uh, and that's all through the EQIP, Environmental Quality Incentives Program, and to help restore habitat. And the gopher tortoise is also targeted in that program, and landowners can get help for uh, that species also, which that, that habitat work also benefits quail. It's a hand-in-hand thing. Uh, the NRCS is also working to, to restore longleaf pine across this historic range. So they also provide assistance through the Longleaf Pine Initiative, and you get provided assistance in the planning and cost share to help uh, implement conservation practices that restore quail habitat there also. Stephen, you mentioned it a couple times, but I think it's important maybe to talk about what is a huntable population? You know, I mean, if a guy walks out on his 200 acres and he's got two coveys, does he need to leave them alone from a promotion of quail perspective? What do you consider, a, or what is the... I guess, academic way to look at a huntable population. I've always heard old timers talk about back in their day, they left their front porch and had permission to hunt everywhere. We're talking Mm -hmm. back in those old farming days. So they would find anywhere from 10 to 12 coveys before lunch. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of huntable population we're talking about because the pressure, uh, you, you can't put a whole lot of pressure on, on wild birds or they're going to get stressed and, and, and leave out or, you know, they'll be flushing before you can even get to them with a dog because they, they get very wary of the pressure. So we're talking, you know, I, my background's working on some of the best places for wild quail that are still in existence. Those, those hunting plantations in South Georgia and some in Alabama. So some of those guys are finding, 40 cubbies a day and I won't even it's unbelievable so I won't even mention the higher numbers I've seen myself 
So we're talking, I know a place now they've been restoring habitat for several years and they can find six coveys, seven, six to 10 coveys in a day and they're happy. So that's kind of what we're talking about, a huntable population. If that guy that's got two coveys on his property, you don't want to hunt them every day. Maybe two coveys, I mean, you can go a few times a season, maybe kill a few birds, or maybe even more than that if you're just doing dog work. How do you determine how many coveys you've got? I mean, my knee-jerk response has just been how many I see moving around in the woods. But if you're trying to be more precise with it so you know if you've got a huntable population, how do you do that? Well, we, as a state, we, we conduct fall and spring surveys on a lot of our management areas and I know a lot of private places that also conduct surveys and then you you can boil that down to a number of bird per acre so that's how they keep up with the population and it's actually more trends than anything you don't know exactly how many birds you got out there but you can see whether your population is trending up responding to habitat management or it's trending down from year to year. And how does the survey perform? Is it camera? Is it? No, that's a that's a man or a lady getting up before daylight and getting out before sunrise and listening from one point. You know, you'll have several points. Uh, you can do several points in the springtime. Stop, listen for five minutes, record what you hear, move on to the next spot. And in the spring, that's going to be your male birds whistling by white. Uh, so you will record what you hear and, and tabulate all that at the end. And during the fall, same deal, getting up before daylight. But you can one person can only do one point per morning in the fall, and that's you'll be listening for the covey call then. It's a different sounding call. People can look that up online. I'm not going to try to do it with my natural voice right now, but but yeah, you'll listen from that one point and you'll count the number of birds you hear calling. And then if they're uh, not too close, you can count those as separate coveys, which is going to be, you know, anywhere from 10 to 12 birds in that covey probably. So we talked a little bit about wild quail habitat, what some of the private landowners are doing. What's going on on public lands? I mean, you, you talked about the importance of prescribed fire and it's obviously very well known what needs to be done to promote wild quail. What is being done and is it trending up or down? We've got certain uh, wildlife management areas that are better than others as far as what we hear in those surveys. Uh, they're responding to management. Uh, we've got plans to improve those properties, but it gets a little difficult whenever you're providing public opportunity uh, because we have to manage for multiple species. So that intensive work that goes on on some private places, we can't get that intense in some instances and in others we can so we've we've got thinning uh, plants to thin trees already conducted those on some areas, getting uh, an increase in field percentage. And we've actually, I guess the main one I can say of what we've done on public land is we established Boggy Hollow Wildlife Management Area down in South Alabama several years ago. And we're working with, it's actually Forest Service land, so we're working with the Forest Service to improve habitat conditions to to grow that quail population more so we've got plans in the works there we're coming up with a long-term management plan on on uh, boggy hollow which is in the Conecuh national forest 
and throughout our WMA system, the, uh-huh. uh, the staff continues to implement techniques to improve the bob white habitat quality. We've got some areas with uh, some crop farmers still there, and those contracts, we modify those contracts to create edge cover and leave some standing crops for the hunting season. Those are in place and will stay in place. We continue to work with the federal folks on our national forest that some of those areas, uh, some of our management areas, you know, it includes a lot of uh, national forest land. So we continue to work with those people to, to thin and create openings and even daylighting roadsides where we can to increase nesting and brooding areas for quail. Jimmy, what about quail forever? Folks want to know with any charity they support, any nonprofit they support, where the dollars go. So how does a dollar spent through a membership to quail forever or or maybe at a, a fundraiser type event, how does that benefit wild quail habitat? We don't see any membership fees. So if you go to a banquet, pay $35 for a membership. We don't see any of that. It goes to national for administration costs, but any money you spend other than that, it's up to the local chapter to what they want to do. My chapter and the Covey Rice chapters paid uh, or assisted for prescribed fire on Coosa uh, management area. There's new longleaf plantings, I think, that are, are between four and six years old that had not been burned. The, the habitat wasn't that bad a shape because kind of really rocky soil, so it wasn't too overgrown, but it really needed to start being burned. I think the WMA staff was the terrain and the, you know, they were a little nervous of the fire. So the Forest Commission came in and kind of contracted for the State Forest Commission to start some of the fires. And the WMA staff right now is, I think, taking it, and Stephen correct me, but they're doing it all now. And they got a, a burn plan that looks really good for quail and uh, on w, other WMAs. So kind of springboarded yeah. those efforts down in the Conecuh, the Conecuh Forest chapter out of Andalusia. Their main focus, you know, they do help with the whistling counts like Stephen's talking about. They do whistle counts on Geneva WMA and then Boggy Hollow and Blue Springs tracking you know, numbers spring and, and fall. And they also go in to these wildlife openings in the forest in this time of year. So someone's taken out from their hunt as part of their hunting season to go work to maintain those plots to create, you know, brood habitat. And uh, Stephen can speak to the importance of the brood habitats, creating those ragweed, partridge pea, creating what used to be in the farming, the weedy edges or the forbs. It's really creating that for those small chicks to get under. Uh, donating seeds to some of these openings that could be brood habitat, a, a sorghum patch or a corn patch that's kind of dirty wouldn't be bad brood habitat either and we're donating seeds to some of these wmas all over the state and the whistle counts and i think i covered about everything i mean it's really important that these fundraisers these events that are happening locally those dollars are staying local from those fundraising efforts yeah so we get to decide locally you know what's what's important to so you know right now i've been spending my wheels trying to find opportunities to hopefully put some fire on some other WMAs and uh, you know some of these properties are leased by the state so they're not easy but I'm trying to figure out some ways to make it happen because yeah there's always a way to make it happen possibly so just trying to work through partnerships to get things done yeah that the um, the partnership with wildlife and fisheries and quail forever is important it's going to continue to be important and 
We're just growing it now. It's going to continue to grow. It's been important for us to fund some of our projects. Jimmy and, and his chapter and the other chapters have been instrumental in getting some of these projects funded and accomplished and all off to create more quail habitat. Hopefully, we can continue to grow that partnership and apply the needed management and make more quail habitat and in turn grow those quail populations. Well, and, and grow quail populations, you grow quail hunters and licensed sales contributes dollars back to conservation. It's all of, it's a positive or negative feedback loop, no matter <laughs> which way you go. So hopefully things can trend into the positive. We've established why quail are, are a vital species and very important species to all hunters, whether they enjoy quail hunting or not. But we've hit on a lot of these management practices. I think I know the answer to my question that's going to be coming up. But if you were going to talk to a private landowner and they were going to say, all right, I want to start. I want to start getting going on, on managing for wild quail. What would be the succession of those management practices that you would advise them to undertake? What's the top three and, and what's your number one, two, and three? Well, putting it in one, two, and three, it's, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, answer it in your uh, way. You know, basically, if you had a dollar to spend to promote wild quail, how would you divide that dollar up? Start with it would depend on the property and the existing habitat. But the bottom line, create early successional habitat. Install fire breaks and burn. Buy a disc, buy a tractor, rent, contract somebody. But the soil needs to be disturbed besides the burning. Create and manage fallow fields. A lot of times, brood habitat is the limiting factor because Nesting habitat on most of the places I see is available, plenty of it, but the brooding habitat, and we're talking fallow fields, weeds, bare ground, they need to dis- bare ground, disturb that soil in some way, just putting in fallow fields or just strip disking through a, a planted pine plantation, disturb that soil. And, and another thing is eradicate pasture and turf grasses. A lot of, a lot of those fields come back with grasses that just choke everything else out so those you need some herbicide and the woods that haven't been thin go ahead and get them thin let that sunlight get to the ground let that early successional habitat come on the the heavier the thinning the better right right and we're looking when i say thinning first thinning is you may want to be a little careful but ideal basal area is going to be around 40 so we're we're talking pretty thin when you get down there, but that's ideal. Well, guys, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about all this. I know that there's a lot of people that still care about quail and I'm optimistic that we're going to see as more awareness is brought to the problem and the importance of the species. Uh, we're going to see a, a trend upwards in quail habitat and wild quail and hopefully more, more coveys for everybody to enjoy. One of the biggest things I think if somebody does have a dollar to spend, maybe they're not a landowner. They can definitely support quail forever. So, Jimmy, if folks want to do that, what's the best way to go about it? If they're going to spend their money to support quail forever, would you have them attend an event first, join quail forever online? Where should they go and how should they get involved? Yeah, I'd recommend attending an event, give some money locally to see, you know, if you want to see change in your area. But yeah, quailforever.org. And there should be a link to find a chapter. And there also should be find a biologist. So if you need help, 
Uh, I know there might be some listeners outside of central Alabama, and there might be there's some biologists in the surrounding states. So there's probably a biologist around, and there's going to be some in Alabama soon. Uh, you'll be able to find those biologists on a map and get their phone number and email, and also find a chapter that'll give you a contact, somebody to contact locally, and you can see the events on there. If you just want to join and you know you don't want to go, that's fine too. But if you want to find an event, that's the way to do it. If you want to talk to somebody and say, I want to volunteer, you know, because we need volunteers to help with these events. And maybe there's somebody that can go out and help with these surveys because Stephen can tell you once you, you know, on a fall survey, when you only got two people working at a WMA and there's 20 sites, there's potential for some a listener out there on those mornings. So contacting somebody, the chapter, you know, they can get you in to do some volunteer work if that interests you. And Stephen, same question for you, man. If folks want to keep tabs on what's going on with uh, state lands, where there's habitat projects being put into place, where there's opportunities for, for wild quail hunting, or maybe work with you guys to get onto their property and create these habitat management plans or get involved on the volunteer side, what's the best way for them to do that? They can contact us through the outdooralabama.com or they can call their, their local district office or even if, if they're visiting the WMA. Just talk to the area manager there and, and ask questions and, and tell those guys what they'd like to see. And we definitely try to accommodate. Well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. And next time we got a quail question, we're definitely going to look forward to having you back on. Hope you guys have a good rest of your 2021. And thanks for all you do. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you for having us. us. Clint, I think both those guys make a pretty strong case for starting to manage for wild quail. I mean, if, if you're interested in having big deer, you're interested in having turkeys, you do yourself no harm by managing for quail. And we see that they're a really important species just for a lot of different reasons. I think the other side to every landowner equation, though, is the investor. Every landowner is an investor, whether they think they are or not. Some of them are investors first and maybe habitat managers second. How do you make a case to an investor for managing for wild quail? Well, it's really, on average, recreational properties sell for a lot higher in the in the dirt than conventional straight timberland tracks or agricultural tracks, just because the, the buyers for those properties are very specific. They know what they want, and they're looking for the type of property that's been well-managed and manicured from a wildlife standpoint, so they're willing to spend more. And so if you have got a track that's not there now, but you can use these reasonable reasonably priced methods that they mentioned, fire, chemical releases, cost share programs, CSPs, anything, then you can use that to create that habitat that's going to create equity for you down the road. And part of that, if you've got a timberland track, you can take that timber income in the interim. So you're getting the cash flow right. while you create equity in the dirt for a recreational buyer. So you're, you're winning twice. And if you do it properly, and, and as we talked about in the past, not overdo it, either way, and you'll come out really well. I just think of it as almost like a, a highest and best use, you know, I mean, commercial land sells for more than farmland does. Farmland sells for more than timberland does typically. So if you can make that conversion from a timber property or whatever it may be into a recreational property, like you talk about, you're adding that equity. And, and I just really like what you said too, about being able to use the timber income that you've got currently there to give you some of that cash flow on your way to doing that. It's, it's all fun, man. I, I just really love every aspect of, 
of habitat management. And it sounds like there's tons of resources out there too, where if you're just getting into this, go and talk to the different agencies and the different groups like Quail Forever and Wildlife Freshwater Fisheries and the NRCS. And not only are they going to be willing to help you just with boots on the ground, but they're also going to be willing to help you financially. There's tons of cost share programs out there to get this stuff established. It's obviously important to a lot of people that it happened. So folks, that is going to wrap it up for us this week. As always, we appreciate you listening. Take a second over on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast to drop us a review. Really helps keep the show going. And uh, here's another handy option for you. If you want to get the podcast emailed to you each week, it's really easy to just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Guys, hope you stay safe out there and we will talk to you next week. This week's Hunt Land podcast has been brought to you by First South Farm Credit. What does the farm mean to you? Maybe it's just a piece of land where you can go to relax or enjoy the outdoors. Whatever the farm means to you, First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. As a successful financial cooperative, First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. And also brought to you by SunSouth. From outdoor equipment, parts, service, accessories, SunSouth has you covered. Own the best for less. Visit SunSouth or SunSouth.com for quality John Deere equipment. SunSouth for those that do. And also brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or get Give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by Southern Yankees. Right now for sale, Southern Yankees has around 60 does and bucks that are mule deer hybrids. Most are 50% mule deer genetics. The 75% and greater mule genetics look and hop as mule deer do. These animals are not being sold as game animals. A high fence enclosure is required for ownership. They are produced by world-class mule deer sires. Southern Yankees Deer Farm, 256-990-3838. Any and all state laws will be followed prior to commencement of any final proposal to sell or the actual sale of these animals. This is void where prohibited by law. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baia and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. Bottom line, we know land, and now is a great time to buy or sell. Want to know why? Shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Great Days Outdoors Magazine guides you on hunting and fishing south of the Mason-Dixon. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today wherever fine magazines are sold or save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com.